and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name's Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back, finding the show. First time listeners, happy to have you aboard. I'm really excited to have a very special guest on the line with me to talk about uh, about as current of an issue as we could possibly talk about. I'm going to just make my quick little pitch for Counterpunch and remind listeners that alternative media, independent media is so critical in these times that we're living through right now. Increasingly, our spaces on the left are shrinking. I think it's doubly important that we support those outlets that do remain, especially those that have a track record of committed activism, of committed uh, progressive discourse, and so forth. I think Counterpunch really does fit the bill there. It is this little outpost in the wilderness that we run here, and we really do depend on all of your support. You can get yourself a subscription to the print magazine, or you can make a donation through the PayPal, pick up the phone and call the Counterpunch office. However you want to do it, it's greatly appreciated. So that out of the way, I want to turn to my guest today. I'm very happy to have Mark Weisbrot on the program. Mark is the co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. He's the author of the very important book, Failed, What the Experts Got Wrong About the Global Economy. Also a co-author with Dean Baker of the book Social Security, The Phony Crisis. Uh, his column appears pretty much everywhere. You can find you can find his work from the New York Times, Washington Post, L.A. Times, The Guardian, and of course, uh, our humble little production studio that we call Counterpunch. So uh, with that said, uh, Mark Weisbrot, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I want to just I want to begin by asking you about this very important paper that you and your colleague Jeffrey Sachs just released, uh, really just in the last I guess forty eight hours or so. Uh, again, the for those people who have not seen the paper or, or heard about it, uh, this is from the Center for Economic and Policy Research, entitled "Economic Sanctions as Collective Punishment: The Case of Venezuela." So, Mark, I just want to begin by asking you very simply, uh, tell us about this study. Uh, give us a summary of the results and what your findings were. Well, we found that the sanctions, which was, I think, kind of obvious, but we did the best from the available data to uh, take a closer look at it. We found that the sanctions have killed a lot of people, tens of thousands of people, since August of 2017, and that's just through the end of 2018. Uh, we estimated more than uh, 40,000. Uh, that's a rough estimate because you can't uh, always tell what would have happened in the absence of the sanctions. But that's based on the increase in mortality that was found in survey data from 2017 to 2018. And so on that basis, uh, since the sanctions, you could also see the impact of them in various other data. So for example, the in right in August of 2017, right after the Trump administration announced these uh, sanctions that were broad financial sanctions that cut off most credit uh, to the uh, economy, uh, oil production fell very rapidly. It was already falling uh, at about 20,000 uh, barrels uh, a month, but then it fell, uh, the rate of decline uh, tripled immediately after the uh, the August sanctions were implemented. Now, why does this matter? Well, oil in Venezuela is the basis of all, almost all of their export earnings, all the dollars that come to the economy, not just uh, that you know end up in the government, but also the ones that end up in the private sector. Uh, so that's what 
the government and the private sector use to import food, uh, life-saving medicines, uh, medical equipment, the parts, uh, spare parts uh, for uh, infrastructure of water and sanitation. And so you had, uh, during that period, uh, increases in uh, disease. You had, you know, uh, 80,000 people with HIV who haven't, you have that now, or at least uh, in 2018 and more now, you had 80,000 people with HIV who had not had antiretroviral treatment since 2017. You have 16,000 people, according, this is all according to the UN, who need dialysis, 16,000 people with cancer, 4 million people with uh, diabetes and hypertension. Many of them couldn't get and can't get insulin or cardiovascular medicine. So the causality is there. It's kind of obvious that if you uh, cut off these essential imports, which is what this executive order uh, from the Trump administration did, you're going to cut off necessities and uh, vital uh, inputs to necessary infrastructure uh, and uh, you're you're going to cause uh, people to die, and so this really shouldn't surprise anyone. Uh, but since the uh, Trump administration, you know, is pretending that the sanctions are targeted uh, towards the government, and most of the reporting doesn't really challenge that. They do occasionally, but you have to really read everything to find it. Um, uh, you know, most people don't know that. Right. And I think that's one of the important takeaways, especially for people who are, you know, the uninitiated on issues related to Venezuela, because the the dominant discourse around this issue is that the uh, that the economic crisis and all of the social uh, ramifications of it is primarily an internal issue. It is internally caused. And when you begin to examine this, uh, the, the crippling effect of these sanctions, you find that, in fact, it's quite the opposite, that it's really an external force that is attacking attempting to use sanctions as a means of, well, what, what, what can we call it? A form of irregular warfare, economic warfare, a prelude to war, however you want to put it. It is warfare. Sanctions are warfare. And I want to emphasize that because, you know, obviously Venezuela is not the only place where the United States is using sanctions. But, you know, the economy was uh, already uh, in recession when the sanctions, those sanctions were implemented. And it already had high inflation, but not yet uh, what economists would call hyperinflation, which is the classical definition is uh, 50% a month. It wasn't, it wasn't that, that yet. Uh, so one of the impacts that the sanctions have is to prevent the government from recovering or allowing, prevent the economy from recovering and prevent the government from taking the necessary steps to get rid of the hyperinflation and to restore economic growth. So uh, that's the other way that the sanctions uh, kill people because, you know, with the declining economy, people have less income. The economy has uh, less income for imports and, and, and it just continues into a downward spiral. Now, 
the August sanctions weren't nearly as bad as what was imposed in January of 2019, January 23rd, when the uh, U.S. government recognized Juan Guaido as what they called the interim president of Venezuela. That by itself uh, caused a whole set of sanctions that most people don't even know. And it's kind of obvious, again, how that would happen, because if you recognize a parallel government, which the United States hasn't done really since uh, since World War II, when the Nazis, you know, uh, occupied uh, France and they rep- and the U.S. recognized a government in exile, you know, uh, this is really an extreme uh, measure, and without any, and of course, it's illegal. Everything that we're talking about is illegal under international law and, and I would argue, under U.S. law as well. We can get to that. But um, when you recognize this parallel government, as the Trump administration did, that means that anything the government, any oil the government sells, the revenue has to go to uh, Guaido. So the government, so it's, it's really imposing a trade embargo and more of a financial embargo as well. And the administration threatened other uh, countries and, well, mostly their financial institutions, that anybody who did business with Venezuela, any financial institutions, would be themselves placed under sanctions. And to give you an example of how powerful that is, you know, Russia is not, as you know, an ally of the United States, but the Russian uh, state-owned uh, financial institution Gazprom cut off the account of uh, Venezuela's oil company, state oil company PDVSA, because the U.S. threatened to sanction that institution. So, and then they threatened India as well uh, to force them uh, not to import oil uh, from Venezuela. So. This was an even more drastic embargo, and you could see the impact of that from the data on both oil production and also exports. So from January to February, we now know that exports fell by an estimated 46 percent, you know, which is incredible. I don't think it's it certainly never happened in Venezuela. I, I don't think. It's, it's probably never happened in, 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 in Latin America, at least not in the modern era. And you can imagine what this does. This is, again, cutting off nearly half of what was left of their ability to import all these essential goods. And that's what those uh, sanctions did. They cut oil production uh, by 36%. Uh, those are official uh, statistics uh, from OPEC. You know, so again, these numbers, some of them are estimates, uh, some of them uh, really aren't. And uh, and yet the you really have to search to find them in in the media. They're there. But uh, the news isn't about this. 
I want to ask you about the term that you put into the title of this report. Uh, the, the, again, the, the title of the of the uh, report, Economic Sanctions as Collective Punishment, the Case of Venezuela. And I want to zoom in, if we could, on this term, collective punishment, because as you mentioned in your previous comments, Mark, uh, the issue is that everything that the United States is doing here is clearly illegal by international law. And you mentioned that you believe it's also illegal under U.S. law, which I'd, I'd like to get a comment on as well. But the 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 very nature of collective punishment is considered a war crime. I mean, this is a this is enshrined in the Nuremberg Doctrine, and so the very the very idea of punishing the entire country rather than say uh, the kind of sanctions that we've seen in other contexts, where sanction, sanctioning individuals, maybe the head of a bank or the president or whatever it may be, but this form of collective punishment, I think, uh, exceeds what we've seen previously, and 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 perhaps uh, entering into uncharted territory. Yeah, well, it, it's not completely uncharted because they've done this, you know, in Iraq, for example, after the, the first Gulf War, they had sanctions uh, against Iraq that were pretty severe. And they, you know, there are various studies of this, but the estimates uh, that I think are realistic are somewhere between 400 and 500,000 uh, children died. Uh, as a result of of those sanctions, and, I, and then that's kind of the direction that Venezuela is going in if they keep uh, doing this. And and I and, just want I just wanted know, to say that Madeleine Albright says famously that that was well worth it, and so we have to wonder whether that's what Washington thinks about Venezuela these days. Well, they don't care at all. I mean, that's obvious. And in fact, you know, you know, it's it's not even it's it's even worse than what you might imagine. That it's you know that the civilians are collateral damage because they want to hurt the government. Here's you know we put this in our paper. It's an exchange between uh, Matt Lee, uh, associate an Associated Press reporter, a very good reporter who asks these kind of hard uh, questions at press briefings, and he he said to Pompeo, "Well, are you satisfied with the pace of the momentum behind Guaido and his?" Leadership, because this was March 11th, so it was almost three months, and they hadn't they'd expected to overthrow uh, the government in uh, in the week of January 23rd, and then they came back a month later with their so-called humanitarian aid delivery, and that was supposed to provoke a rebellion in the military, and so on. And so he was saying, you know, it doesn't seem to be working. And uh, Pompeo, uh, I'm going to quote this. He said, "Well, we wish things could go faster." But I'm very confident that the tide is moving in the direction of the Venezuelan people and will continue to do so. It doesn't take much for you to see what's really going on there. The circle is tightening. The humanitarian crisis is increasing by the hour. I talked with our senior person on the ground there in Venezuela last night. You can see the increasing pain and suffering that the Venezuelan people are suffering from. So he's really saying that this is going to bring about the end of the government, either through, you know, what they've called for a military rebellion or some kind of insurrection. So there really are, it's collective punishment to bring about regime change, and they're not really even hiding it. It's It's really unbelievable. 
Exactly. I mean, it really is. And one thing, one other thing I want to ask you about, uh, it's been reported in, in a number of different publications that uh, Donald Trump has kind of had a sort of a bugaboo about Venezuela from the very beginning. Uh, I believe it was Reuters or maybe it was AP reported uh, an incident in the summer of 2017 where Trump was, I guess, livid and demanding, how come I can't just invade Venezuela? And apparently at the time, uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, Mr. ExxonMobil, himself and former national security advisor H.R. McMaster basically had to talk him down and, and, and kind of had to be, imagine, the sensible people in the room. And now you have these war hawks like Bolton and Elliot Abrams, I mean, legitimate war criminals in charge of all of this policy, and we see the further escalation. So I'm just wondering, uh, you know, Trump has seemingly had this kind of nakedly colonial view of what to do about Venezuela. So is your is your take on it that this is really Trump's uh, attempt at the oil, or is that simply a simple way of looking at it and that there's more to it under the surface? Well, it's a mixture. I mean, I think the oil is obviously part of it. Bolton said that openly and Trump, you know, Trump in the quote that you were referring to, I think he said something like, why haven't we had a war with Venezuela? They've got all that oil and they're sitting at our back door. And, um, and Bolton also said that it would be very, he actually said it would be very good for the U.S. economy, which is not really true. Uh, it would be good for certain corporations, but wouldn't make a dent in the economy. Uh, if they got to, uh, if, if they were able to have access to Venezuelan oil. And, but I don't think that's the main thing at all. Uh, I would say that especially Bolton and Abrams, these are, uh, these people, have a, a very broad strategic view of what they want from Latin America. And it's really to, to control the region. And they, they have a, you know, they've been making some progress. They have the government of Argentina, the government of Brazil. Those are, those really are very closely allied with the U S they have Ecuador now. And they're, they've said openly, that after Venezuela, they're going to go after Cuba and Nicaragua. And so they're serious about, they want to uh, take even more than what they had before the 21st century. And really, if you look at, you know, in, in some sense, it's very similar to the strategy that was under both Obama and Bush. It's just much more violent and aggressive. But those two administrations did uh, fight uh, the left government's in in Latin America, in particular in South America, in almost every country where a left government was elected, is they intervened in various ways. Sometimes very overtly in the coup in Honduras in 2009, where Hillary Clinton wrote about it in her memoirs and said she actively worked to prevent the democratically elected president from returning to office. You know, uh, and you have. Other places where it was done very openly, the 2004 coup in, in Haiti, the 2002 coup in Venezuela, you have State Department documents that show the role of the United States. But um, the, in other places, it was, more, it was more quiet and it was more subtle, but it was still important. You know, in Argentina, uh, the U.S. Uh, government blocked uh, loans. Um, under Obama, 
uh, they blocked loans to the government in the Inter-American Development Bank in a time when the country really needed uh, foreign exchange. So, and I could go through country by country, Bolivia, Ecuador, they did things in all of these countries. And so now they're taking advantage of, you know, the relative weakness because the, the international institutions that the left built during the first decade of the 20th century have been uh, decimated. They had UNASUR, the Union of South American Nations. They had they created the uh, Community of Latin and, and Latin American and Caribbean States, the CELAC, which was uh, like the OAS but without the U.S. and Canada, uh, to prevent the OAS from being used the way it's being used right now as a tool of the United States. And so you had all these changes, and they're basically in the rollback mode, and Venezuela is part of that strategy. And I guess to you know complete the narrative I, or the explanation here, I don't want to oversimplify, there's also Florida. Uh, if you look at Rubio and Trump, those two especially, when they see taking Venezuela and Cuba and Nicaragua, they're thinking about the 27 electoral votes in uh, Florida. It's a, that's their, uh, that's one of their main uh, strategic uh, motivations. And maybe all the, uh, those two care about, although Rubio is, you know, ideological too. Trump is just more, almost completely opportunistic. And uh, so it, it's a mix of, of motives and influences. You know, you have the, the Florida right wing, vote that they're looking for, but not just the vote, the money. There's There are rich people who are contributing to them from, from Southern Florida uh, to the Republican Party for exactly this uh, this kind of operation. And and in, in that sense, you know, uh, they, they don't even care if they win or not or what kind of a mess they make, because as long as they can show that base that they're the baddest people on the block, and they're the ones who are really trying to destroy the left uh, governments, uh, that might be enough for them. Indeed. Uh, I know we're running out of time. I want to ask one one other question. I had written a piece when uh, when much of this first began in January um, for Counterpunch that highlighted some of the other motivations that I think were kind of being lost in a lot of the analysis. And one of the ones that I focused in on had to do with a, I guess, little known uh, development in the last couple of years, which is that uh, based on some of the loans that the Russians provided the Venezuelan government, Russia now controls a 49 0.9% stake in Sitco, which is the U.S. subsidiary of the state oil company of Venezuela. There are a lot of people uh, in very uh, influential positions in the United States that are fearful and nervous about that. And there was actually a consortium of, uh, I believe, multiple billionaires and others who had come together. This was reported by Reuters and essentially made an attempt to try to buy up that debt and push the Russians out and try to kind of I guess you could say, extricate them from Venezuela in a financial sense. And so I, I wanted to ask you, how much of how much of what we're seeing is also a, a global geopolitical move, particularly with respect to Russia? I don't think it would look any different what we're seeing today if Russia was just didn't exist. I really don't think it makes that much difference. Uh, I think what they're doing is is what they've done. 
uh, you know, if you just look at the past half century, century, they've always intervened in whatever way they can get away with uh, to oppose, you know, various governments that are either more independent, uh, left of center. It's really the independence that's the biggest thing. And especially with oil states, I mean, if you're just talking about Venezuela, you know, an oil state is always going to have problems. You notice Iraq, Iran, Venezuela, they always have some problems with the United States unless they're tightly allied because they're always going to be an influential power in, in whatever region they exist. And that means that from a, you know, a Washington point of view, an imperial point of view, uh, they're going to want to make sure that that government is one that at the very least aligns with their foreign policy. That's what most of the fight is, is really about. I mean, Look at Haiti. They've overthrown that government uh, twice since 1991, and Haiti has nothing. It's just a pawn, and it's a chess game, and they're going to take it when they can get it. And that's what I think mostly what we're looking at. It's, it's really about power overwhelmingly. And just in the last couple of minutes here, I want to, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but I'd like to get your read on how close are we to a war potentially in Venezuela now that we're seeing this coup fail and, and, and collapse and Guaido really being called into question in terms of legitimacy and Lope, Leopoldo Lopez on the run, etc. Uh, what's your read on how close to war we are? And then the, se- the, the second part of that, and maybe this is the crux of my question, is uh, from your perspective, what's the real path forward here? How do we actually resolve whatever uh, uh, conflicts and issues need to be resolved and avoid a war? Well, people like Trump and Bolton are, are pretty, and Abrams are, you know, they can be pretty crazy, so you can't rule it out. But uh, on the other hand, I mean, if I were to guess, I would say that, you know, it's dangerous because if they had the right pretext, they, 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 they might do it. But it's not their, it doesn't seem to be their plan right now. You know, their right-wing allies in Latin America don't want it. Their coalition and the willing in Europe don't want it. And, you know, again, they could just say, well, we don't care. But, uh, you know, other parts of the so-called national security state, the State Department, the Pentagon, they tend to not want uh, the kind of, you know, they don't want a war that they can't win. I mean, they're not going to, I, I think the smart people realize that you're not going to be able to impose a Chilean-style uh, dictatorship on that country. It's, uh, and this partly answers your other question, you know, uh, you know, it's a polarized country, and it's also heavily armed, and so there really has to be some kind of negotiated uh, solution, and... I don't see any other way. Now, the question is, are, you know, the U.S. is definitely pushing the country away from that. In fact, they've chosen Juan Guaido because he's part of Voluntad Popular and his mentor is Leopoldo Lopez, and they have a hard line against, you know, negotiation. There's not, they say no negotiation. When the Pope offered to intervene, they said no immediately, and the Trump administration said no because they're working together, and that's why they picked them because they don't want any kind of uh, compromise. They want their chosen people in power, and that's, uh, that's what they're fighting for. And so, on the other hand, 
it's not clear how they're going to get that. You can see for three months they've already failed in every attempt. The coup this week was a complete, the attempted coup was a complete failure. I think it was mainly just Guaido trying to provoke the government to arrest him and then hoping that the U.S. would intervene militarily as a result of that. But the solution is going to have to be a negotiated solution. I think if the U.S. was not involved, uh, they probably would uh, settle their, their differences. Well, I guess we're going to have to monitor it very closely. And of course, all of us who are interested in peace and instability are going to do whatever we can to maintain it and to defend international law, sovereignty and and, and the rule of law. Um, I want to thank you, Mark Weisbrot, for coming on the program today and for this very important report that you've uh, released with uh, Jeffrey Sachs. Again, the report, Economic Sanctions as Collective Punishment, the Case of Venezuela, uh, published by the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Mark Weisbrot, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio and speaking with us today. Thanks for inviting me, Eric. Listeners, thank you as always. We'll chat again very soon.